Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on July 3, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Morris Pearl, the chair of an organization known as the Patriotic Millionaires. The Patriotic Millionaires consists of high net worth Americans, business leaders, and investors who are united in their concern about the destabilizing concentration of wealth and power in America. Their mission is to build a more stable, prosperous, and inclusive nation by promoting public policies based on the principle of equal political representation, a guaranteed living wage for all working citizens, and a fair tax system. More specifically, they believe all citizens should enjoy political power equal to that enjoyed by millionaires. They also believe that all citizens who work full-time should be able to afford their basic needs. And finally, they believe that the taxes paid by millionaires, billionaires, and corporations should make up a greater proportion of federal tax receipts. The patriotic millionaires first came together in 2010 to demand an end to the Bush tax cuts for millionaires, instantly sparking the nation's attention. Over the last decade, the group has, has generated a lot of media attention, appearing on outlets from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart to the PBS NewsHour, from the pages of the Boston Globe to the History Channel. Additionally, they had the honor of joining President Obama in the White House in 2012 for his tax day address, and again in 2014 for the signing of the executive order raising wages for federal contract employees. The group is chaired by Morris Pearl, a former BlackRock executive who retired three and a half years ago after a long career on Wall Street. Morris now works with the Patriotic Millionaires full-time. Other members of the Patriotic Millionaires include investors and business owners from across the country, such as Abigail Disney, technologist Steve Silberstein, lawyer Roberta Kaplan, billionaire medical device heiress Pat Stryker, investor Lawrence Benenson of Benenson Capital Partners, and many others. In addition to driving the public narrative, the Patriotic Millionaires have met privately with hundreds of elected leaders from both sides of the aisle. They have testified in front of lawmakers at the local, state, and federal levels on issues from minimum wage to campaign finance to tax policy. As I mentioned previously, the chairman of the Patriotic Millionaires, Morris Pearl, is with us now to talk about this organization, its accomplishments, its goals, and its vision for a better America. Mr. Pearl, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Great to be on your show, Dan. Thank you. Okay. And uh, let's start with the vision statement for the patriotic millionaires. It's now it's it's hard for me to talk to a, a finance guy such as yourself and you know not try to frame things in terms of investments, but really it seems that the patriotic millionaires are concerned mostly with their biggest investment. And I'm not talking about a company or a financial institution, but really the entire nation. So that being the case, can you give us a uh, tell us what types of investments that the patriotic millionaires are advocating for in this country. What we're advocating for is to have the kind of country for our children and grandchildren who grow up in that we grew up in to have those kinds of opportunities. What we're seeing over the past few years, especially, and it's becoming more obvious over the past few weeks, that America is becoming a country with a few rich people and lots and lots of poor people. And that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It obviously doesn't work for poor people, but it doesn't work for business people and investors either. We need a country with lots of people 
who go out shopping every day, who buy expensive shoes and expensive organic groceries and premium ice cream and pay their bills on time every month. And that's how investors and business people get rich. Um, so we're afraid, very afraid the way the country is going with this gross inequality is not sustainable and is not going to work. And so talking about that, and for various reasons, there, there, is, there is an incredible growing uh, wealth gap in this country. So um, it would seem obvious to a guy like me that those screaming the loudest about it should be the ones that are at the bottom. And yet here we are, those at the top are screaming just as loud and they're putting action behind their words. They're successfully lobbying politicians at all levels of government and this is, to me, a fascinating phenomenon. So I have to ask, uh, what motivates the average patriotic millionaire to get involved in this fight to lessen the wealth gap? I think, honestly, it's the understanding that the wealth gap is so huge that it's not in their long-term enlightened self-interest to have this kind of wealth gap. You know, I remember at the 2004 convention, someone was speaking and said, oh, why are you so altruistic? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, I'm actually not that altruistic at all. I'm greedy, just as greedy as the next guy, it's just I'm greedy for something different. I'm greedy for the kind of country where I grew up in for my kids to grow up in. Mm -hmm. And it's true, I don't, I mean, I'm a 60 year old white guy living in a fancy co-op in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I don't pretend to understand what it's like to have somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. And even if I wanted to, I couldn't. But I do understand that the current system is not sustainable. It's not working. And we can't, it, the way it's going, it's going to break down. And it has been breaking down over the last little while. Yeah. So we have to make a major change in the direction we're going. It just seems obvious to us and our members that we have to change course because the current course is leading us to disaster. So if I, if I may ask then, uh, make it just a little bit more personal and I don't want to get, you know, too deep into this, but, uh, could you give us your own, you know, personal moment of enlightenment or epiphany? Uh, when did, when did you, or was it a singular moment that you woke up and said, Hey, this has got to change, or was it a gradual process for you personally? I mean, honestly, it was a more gradual process. I mean, there, I do often tell the story when I decided to do this full time, which is actually more like six years ago now than um, in 2013 in the summertime, I was in Athens, Greece at a meeting in the fancy dining room at a big bank. And I um, picked up some chocolate pudding from this buffet and I walked over towards the window so people wouldn't see I was having like double desserts. <laughs> and I looked out and I thought I was watching a parade for a moment. Then I realized it wasn't a parade. It was like a riot moving down the street towards the square where parliament was meeting down Sophocles Avenue. Hmm. And, you know, I turned around again, finishing my chocolate pudding. And I looked at these, you know, 20 odd bankers we were meeting with. I sort of thought to myself, are we really doing any good for the rest of the people of Greece other than these bunch of bankers? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, this is not the best use of my remaining time on this earth of 
you know, working on in this way. And I decided to go full time to do advocacy and policy work after that. Okay. So since the, um, you know, like spring of 2014, about six years ago, I've been um, doing this type of work, running the Patriotic Millionaires, uh, basically full time. Oh, wow. So it, why, why the name? I mean, there's a stigma, obviously. Well, not obviously, but there is a stigma involved with being known as a millionaire. And so um, Patriotic Millionaires, I have no personal complaints about the name, but what advantage does that name bring to the table in your experience? Well, it's, yeah, none of our members like the name. Hmm. At every meeting with a bunch of our members, people complain about it. And then the president of the group, who's Erica Payne, um, tells, says that we're not going to change it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's deliberately provocative. Because sort of the right wing, the people that say that, oh, we're supposed to have gross inequality and a few billionaires and lots of poor people, they call themselves patriots. So we chose the name patriotic millionaires because we believe that we are the actual patriotic ones. We are the ones who want to continue the American system that we grew up in mm -hmm. that helped make us wealthy and helped make our country great. So we believe that it's right that we call ourselves the patriotic ones. Mm -hmm. And it's deliberately prov a provocative name. And it's also kind of helpful. Very few people turn down meetings with a group called the Patriotic Millionaires. Well, politicians um, in, in especially, right? That is true. That mm -hmm. is true. So it's quite helpful to hand someone a car that says chairman of the board of the Patriotic Millionaires when I'm asking uh, for a meeting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is a provocative name, but deliberately so. It gets people's attention and it gets people thinking. So it's a good name. Okay. So I'm going to, uh, I, I perused the website at uh, patrioticmillionaires.org. Um, Thank you. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it nails it pretty well for me, especially the vision statement, because uh, I wanted to quote uh, one of the vision statements, which I briefly mentioned during the opening, but uh, I want to pay more attention to it right now. And, and, and the, the statement says, we believe the government should mandate a livable wage for all working Americans rather than relying on the market which has failed to realize that goal over 240 years of American history. So I'm just going to maybe pick on a little bit of politics here, but conservatives in this country, and, and perhaps I should say the, the Republican version of conservatives, they take a more Ayn Rand type of ruggedism approach to wealth. They And they liberally use the S word, that socialist, uh, to brand anyone who does not prescribe to what I believe is becoming an exaggerated form of a meritocracy. So how do you answer to that criticism of socialists? Well, we've never lived in a strict meritocracy. We've never strictly lived in a free market kind of country because that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. If you look at the people who started the biggest businesses in America, people like Jeff Bezos, people like Bill Gates, people like Mark Zuckerberg, they all had parents who could give them hundreds of thousands of dollars to live on for years mm -hmm. while they were starting their businesses. They all had safety nets well beyond what most people could imagine. So they all had that kind of freedom to go off, spend years starting a business without worrying about earning a dollar mm -hmm. or having health insurance 
or having a job or doing anything. And they were able to do the things they did. Not that they weren't brilliant and hardworking also. Right. But it was not pull yourselves up from your bootstraps kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the list of billionaires in America from the Forbes 400 or whatever it's called now. Mm -hmm. And you'll see about a quarter of them did absolutely nothing to become billionaires. They were born that way. Mm-hmm. You know, about a quarter of them are hedge fund managers who did very well and are brilliant. Most of the other half are people who started out extraordinarily wealthy and became even wealthier during their lifetime. And about 1% are people who were poor at some time in their life. Mm. Um, 1%, you know, wow. O- yeah. Oprah Winfrey... Mm-hmm. and George Soros mm-hmm. are the only ones I know of who, and um, um, uh, J.K. Rowling, those three are the only ones who were not wealthy when they were children. Right. They weren't born into wealth, yeah. Or they, they were weren't not born, born into wealth. Actually, advantage. George Soros was, but he became, he did become a penniless refugee at, during the latter part of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, so almost... It's, it's kind of this just figment of people's imagination that people can go from poor to rich. Um, it, it, that's not the way it works. It's people who are born into extremely good circumstances that have the ability to become very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the people, we, we, can't, we can't continue a system where we have so many people we're just destined for poverty and have no hope to do any better. Right. What drives Americans is the hope that their children do better than they do. And that's been true for most generations until my lifetime. Yeah. Um, people now, in just in the last few decades, people now no longer expect their children to do better than they are. And that's what's changed in America. Mm-hmm. And they're right. Inequality has gotten much worse. Circumstances for people have gotten much worse. Mm-hmm. And we have to do something about that. We have to change back to the way it was. So one of the things, and in, 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 um, maybe I'm just sort of picking up on, on perhaps a peripheral item right here, but um, I want to talk a little bit about regulations because we talk about you know, the, the uh, free market and you're saying that the free market doesn't work. And one of my own theories about regulations is that um, they are used to enforce policies that ultimately protect the little guy. And um, But politicians these days, uh, particularly in the conservative side, they will cast regulations in a negative light. Um, but the, the mainstream liberals sort of stand back and they're fairly mum when it comes to defending these regulations. And and I understand it's hard to it's hard work to ensure that regulations are both pertinent and enforceable, but um, there's been a, a trend recently to to uh, against regulations to throw them out the window. And, and aren't you worried that you know throwing out the regulations might be like throwing out the baby with the bathwater? And, and just one uh, perhaps one trite example here is the is a Bureau of Consumer Protection, which has been under a lot of criticism lately. Some of it may be well founded, but uh, there, these, this organization is, is out there to help protect the little guy. So do the patriotic millionaires have any stand on that, on that notion of rolling back regulations? Yeah. I mean, 
we're not saying that every regulation is perfect. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that at the end, you need to depend on having people running the government who are trustworthy and honest and actually want to do a good job for the people. Mm -hmm. No amount of regulation will solve the problem of corrupt people running the government. But on the other hand, we do need certain regulations because the free market does not handle some situations. You are not in a arm's length negotiating position when you're signing an application for a credit card or a mortgage. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have the ability to have some kind of back and forth with the credit card company or the mortgage lender. so it's not a even hand. It's not an even playing field where you're signing, you know, a document that you and the other side agree to. It's something the other side writes and just expects you to sign without, frankly, without even reading it. In most cases, if you ever attended a mortgage closing recently, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's the the basic idea of the, you know in Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand. It doesn't work for everything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work for labor because employers have a different degree of power than employees do. You know, we had we have systems of unions for some places, but that is the one thing Republicans do want to regulate and prevent from operating. Yeah. So we have far fewer people represented by collective bargaining agreements now than we did, you know, when I was a child. Yeah. Um, and that's giving far more power to large employers. There are many places where one employer employs large numbers of workers and large parts of the workforce in their place, in their Mm -hmm. location. And so that is not a system where both sides have the same kind of bargaining power. So the basic idea of free market does not apply to labor. Mm-hmm. There's not an ability for people to offer more or less labor as the price goes up and down. People have a fixed amount of labor they can supply 40 hours per week, maybe 50 hours per week. Mm-hmm. But it's not like, oh, the prices, go- the, the wages have gone down. So I will do something else. Well, no, you don't have you have you can either work or not work. You don't have there's not some third thing you can do. Right. So I don't think we can apply the f- concept of free market economics to the labor market. Because it's not like it's not like the market for a physical product. There's a fixed amount of it. You can't store labor. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why the supply and demand curves do not. The basic arguments from economics 101 for supply and demand doesn't apply to labor the same way it applies to many other things. Yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, we've seen these these movements toward you know, the so-called right to work. These are just underhanded, in my opinion, anyways. These are sort of underhanded ways of undercutting labor by uh, by hitting them in the financial area. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, Let's uh, let's shift a little bit then. Uh, is same sort of theme, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about Citizens United because, uh, and just for a little bit of background, this is a landmark Supreme Court 
ruling back in 2010 that essentially opened up the floodgates uh, of money to fund our political elections. And um, people commonly refer to it as equating corporations with people. That is, you know, the First Amendment rights to free speech extends to corporations. And I think that the Supreme Court, I'm not sure if they were just, you know, perhaps they were being a bit naive, but um, they felt that independent political spending did not present a substantive threat of corruption uh, and, and provided that it was not coordinate with, coordinated with any sort of candidate's campaign. Um, you know, the reality is, you and I know what the reality is, it's, it, it became an unmitigated disaster. Uh, it, well, okay, that's my opinion, but essentially allowing the dollars to influence votes. And uh, this is especially true in, in the form of these super PACs that get, uh, that get formed. They really muddy the waters in a way because they effectively deliver value to a campaign without you know any supposed coordination, but um, they're still delivering value to a, to a, to a campaign. So with that background, um, what, if anything, can or does the patriotic millionaires do to help mitigate this, uh, this thing called Citizens United? Well, what we're advocating for is something that's the kind of system we have here in New York City for the rest of the country. What we do here, in, and it's worked fairly successfully for some years now, is a person who wants to run for office can raise money in donations of 100, 100 or $200 from a, a, you know, hundreds of people, and then get those donations matched. Um, I can think it's eight mm -hmm. to one now. Mm -hmm. So someone, since that rule has taken effect, mm -hmm. you can run for city council or mayor without being the brother-in-law of a real estate developer or having friends who are. Mm -hmm. You can find a few hundred of your uh, neighbors to put in a hundred or two hundred dollars a piece, and then have a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is enough to run a campaign on. Um, so it's really given the person who only has a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. The same voice as the person who has a thousand or two thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and that's made a difference in the face of City Hall or the faces in City Hall. Um, you know, our many of our current elected officials say they would not be elected officials without that system. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing we're advocating for. Not to say, oh, you rich people, you're not allowed to spend money. Um, right. That's I mean, rich people spend money. Right. What we're advocating for is some system to further enable um, the people who are not as rich to have the same kind of voice, the same kind of influence. The problem isn't the money per se, in my personal view. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the people running for office spend so much time with the donors who have thousands of dollars, right. that they get to know those people very well mm -hmm. and they understand those people's problems really well. Mm -hmm. And they don't have as much time to spend with everyone else. Right. And so when some issue comes up, even the most best intentioned of elected officials, they think about that issue and they think about the people they talk to during the campaign. And they, oh yeah, somebody did discuss that with me and this is the problem and this is the answer. Mm -hmm. And it's because they've spent the people they're spending time with are mostly the rich people. And so they see it from that point of view. Mm -hmm. I think that's the real problem is that 
the elected officials are spending so much time with the rich donors soliciting donations or going to parties and doing all these things mm -hmm. that they really have much more insight into the problems of the rich people than the problems of everyone else who has to work for a living. Yeah. Yeah. We call it dialing for dollars that uh, I've heard that uh, up to 50% of uh, U.S. representative and senators' times are spent uh, literally on the phone just dialing for dollars, just trying to get donations for their next it campaign. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so do the patriotic millionaires, uh, d d does the organization take a specific stand on social issues of the day? And it, it, for example, universal health care. And the reason why that comes to my mind right away is that it's the number one cause of personal bankruptcy, uh, somewhat to the tune of like 67% of all personal bankruptcies, according to a recent Harvard University study. And it's, it's directly related to health care costs. So it would seem, anyways, that some sort of universal health care system could go a long way to alleviate the economic pressure on many of our citizens. So um, do the patriotic millionaires take any, uh, take any action on this in this area or, or have an opinion in this area? Um, I mean, I think most of our people would agree with you. Um, that's not one of our official positions. Several of our staff members have been working on universal health care. Um, mm -hmm. But the um, official Patriotic Millionaires group um, doesn't have a, it's not one of the issues that we've been lobbying on. Mm -hmm. But I think you'd find most of our members are on the same page you are about that. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, some of our members who are business people very much don't like the idea that they're so involved in their employees' health care mm -hmm. arrangements. Right. Um, they don't want to be responsible for making decisions about health insurance and things like that. But it's and it's, you know, not good for them that they as small business owners have this responsibility of dealing with their employees health care. It'd be much better if they could just pay the amount of money, you know, pay the employees enough money and everyone gets, you know, whatever health care and the business mm -hmm. owner is not part of that. Well, um, it's. Also, from the uh, from the employee's perspective, too, because, you know, especially with COVID-19 now, you know, a lot of people are finding themselves furloughed or out of a job or something. And so now they're losing their health care. And th that's an extreme example. But uh, but perhaps a less extreme example would be uh, you lose your job, you know, and let's say you're you know, you have some health issues that need some attention. So uh, now that you've lost your job, you've lost your health care. So. Yeah, it's, it's 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 really not a good reason that healthcare and employment are tied together. Mm -hmm. It really had to do with an effort to get around wage freezes during World War II. Hmm. Employers mm -hmm. started offering health insurance as a fringe benefit because they weren't allowed to give people raises, and that's then that system was encouraged by making it tax-free. And so now that's sort of the norm is that people get health insurance through their employers and not through any other way. Hmm. That's interesting how that, uh, how that sort of morphed into our current day situation then. Huh. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, another um, social issue of the day, it, it's, it's our recent struggles over civil rights, um, the, the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, 
which, you know, for the immediate time, as far as I can discern, are directly concerned with the, the terrible price that our fellow citizens are paying for police brutality. But if I may step back for just a little bit here and um, a little bit from the, from the current issue and speak more from a general perspective, these protests, they, they lead me to believe or lead me to question anyways whether uh, economic inequality is manifesting itself as one of the root causes of social inequality. And um, I, I understand that you know, patriotic millionaires are, are concerned with this social inequality brought up initially or brought about to a large degree by the wealth gap. Is there anything in the short term that the organization is doing to help address this most recent issue? I mean, my opinion is that you're right, that it is a problem that millions of our fellow Americans see themselves as second class citizens. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, they're right. They are being treated like second class citizens. And it's not just a matter of, you know, a person who was murdered in Minnesota or even you know, some hundreds of people being murdered around the country. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of millions of people who did not have the opportunity to grow up the way that I do and my family does. Mm-hmm. I know just for one simple, small little example, I can trace some of my success. In fact, my parents had the ability to pay for my education and, and, um, pay for my life while I was going to college, Mm -hmm. partially because they had subsidized mortgages from the United States government, Mm -hmm. subsidized mortgage from the Federal Housing Administration that was specifically by regulation not available for black people or Hmm. in black neighborhoods. Wow. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the people who had parents and grandparents who happened to be black do not have the kind of wealth that people who had parents and grandparents who happen to be white have to this day. The effects of these legal discriminations in the 1940s and 50s into the 60s persist to today. And certain part of the wealth gap between citizens of color and citizens of not can be traced to these policies that were put into place years ago. Even though the laws were changed in the 1960s, the effects of what happened does and can continue for literally for generations. And so I think that that, I think that part of the problem is this effect that has been going on for years. Mm And I mean, there's a lot of other things too, I'm sure, right. not just my one simple example. Right. Um, but I do think that the root cause of, of much of the unhappiness does stem from economic issues. Mm-hmm. I think we have discrimination, not literally, it's not, it's not literally that the only problem is the color of people's skin. It's the fact that they grew up, some people grew up in a very different environment than other people grew up. Mm -hmm. And that people who grew up in an environment with wealthy parents who could send them to school and provide for all kinds of things for them have a different trajectory through life 
than people who grew up under very different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that persists, you know, into the, to the next generation also. Yeah. And so I think what we have to do is provide all people enough resources so that their children can grow up to be full-fledged members of our society mm -hmm. and participate in civic and financial and economic and all the aspects of our society as well as anyone else can. Okay. Yeah, it, it, the thing that got me asking that question was I was looking at the uh, Black Lives Matter um, um, website and in part of their vision statement, and I'll just paraphrase here, is to imagine or, or to imagine and create a world free of anti-blackness where every black person has the social, economic, and political power to thrive. And that, you know, then I read that, and then I read the uh, the vision statement of the patriotic millionaires, and there is a high degree of correlation between the two. And so I think that's where the, uh, that's where the root cause is, is, is the is a social, economic, and political power that uh, yeah. is not I mean, evenly dispersed. They're not, I mean, some people do not have the ability to thrive that other people have. Mm -hmm. And um, and the people who are complaining and unhappy are correct to complain and be unhappy, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. And, um, and yes, I mean, actually, being killed is a whole nother level, yeah. obviously. Well, that, that's a manifestation um, of, of the previous mindset, right? Yeah, because the some people, I mean, I'm, honestly, I think that even the vast majority of police people are doing a good job for their, for their citizens. Mm -hmm. But there are some who really do see the, the population is divided into different classes. And they really do see, oh, there's this other class here that's, that's mm -hmm. you know, not good people, and we have to do something about them. No. Um, and that's just not the right way to look at America. No, no, not at all. Um, mm. So that attitude we have to change, and we have to change it by not having multiple classes of people in our country, by, by actually ha not just saying that all people should thrive, but actually getting all people to have the ability to thrive. Yeah. Okay. Good. And uh, one other uh, social issue of the day that I'd like to get your input on is um, is global warming or climate change. Uh, I prefer the term global warming, but uh, the not-so-long-term effects are obviously going to hit the lower-income households much harder than those who can afford to, you know, more thoroughly perhaps fortify their domains or something. Um, I know there's a lot of people working on this issue, so I, I didn't really expect to, to see the patriotic millionaires uh, uh, working on it. But is there anything the patriotic millionaires is, is doing about uh, about climate change? Well, I think that every problem, every problem hits poor people more than hits rich people. Mm -hmm. Um, that's sort of a fact of life, but that's the nature of being rich is that you don't have to worry about as many things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know any more about climate change or global warming than you do. Right. What we try to do is mostly talk about issues where we being the patriotic millionaires have some special insight in it. Like we can actually have 
a unique position to talk about rich people should pay more taxes actually being rich people. And that has a different, um, you know, that sounds different coming from rich people is coming from people that have to work for a living. Yeah. But um, talking about global warming, I mean, I don't really have anything different to say about global warming than um, than the next guy does. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I, I just didn't notice the, that there was anything on the website about it. So I just thought I'd ask. So I only have 12, we only have about 12 paid staff for, well, uh, maybe 15, but um, so mm -hmm. we can't do everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I get it. You pick your battles. And like I say, there's a lot of other organizations that are focused on this. So, um, so to that end, then, does does the patriotic millionaires, do they align themselves with any other groups in terms of uh, common pursuits, uh, advocating for similar goals? Um, like there's Fair Vote, Represent Us, the Independent Voter Project, the Unrig Summit, and so on. Or, oh, we work with a lot of other groups um, mm -hmm. about all kinds of things. Um, we've worked with Resource Generation, Women's Donor Network, other similar groups. We've worked on other groups working on tax fairness issues, Americans for Fair Taxation. So we often partner with other groups that are working on the same issues we are to do, you know, to do various things. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And we're happy to work with anybody who wants to work with us, you know, on any of the issues that we're working on. We welcome that. Okay, we've well. worked with labor organizations. Um, we've worked on state level issues in California and New York and several other states. Um, we work on federal issues. We've worked on local issues here in New York around campaign finance um, mm -hmm. reform. So we're happy to work with all kinds of people. Okay, wonderful. So um, this gets to the portion of my interview, which I call the call to action. Um, you obviously have a website. It's uh, patrioticmillionaires.org, uh, all one word, patrioticmillionaires.org. Um, how can people get involved in helping patriotic millionaires? I mean, it could be anything from you know, writing letters or whatever or to, to Congress people or so on. Um, obviously, uh, not everybody's a millionaire, so you know that, that sort of precludes the, the millionaire part of it, but there are still people that want to get, you know, would like to get involved and help out in some way or another. I mean, anybody can look at our website. We have our projects going there. We have a lot of material about why rich people should pay higher tax rates than people that work for a living. Though that's one of the main things we're trying to advocate for these days. Mm -hmm. um, sort of the opposite of what happened at the end of 2017. Yeah. A lot of what we're talking to about with Congress people is these crazy tax loopholes that are getting into some of these um, Republican laws. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things we talk about. Um, people are welcome to join our organization. Um, frankly, we, you know, people that join, that's where we get the money we use to pay the 15 or so staff people we have. Mm -hmm. And um, anyone should look at our website, look at our issues, and um, join with us if they want to. Wonderful. So uh, as we wrap this up, do you have any final thoughts from the Patriotic Millionaires? I mean, just the patriotic millionaires are a group of people from around the country that are really concerned that we're our country's dividing into a country with a few rich people and lots of poor people, and that does not work. They try that in many places, 
Most recently, they tried that in South Africa in the 1980s. That did not end well for the rich people. And that's mm. not the way that we want our country to go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm always reminded of the French Revolution, too, which has been the quite French some time Revolution. ago. But uh, The Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. Very good. We've already had one revolution here in America. I prefer not to have another one. No, no, I, I am I'm with you on that one, too. I think we need to avert this disaster before it, uh, before it unfolds in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our children or our children's children. So, Okay, so uh, just uh, we've been talking with Morris Pearl, the chairman of the Patriotic Millionaires. Uh, Morris, thank you for spending time with us this evening. Happy to be on your show. Thank you. Wonderful. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Or just Google Alliance Party After Dark, and you'll find it all over the place. Also, keep in mind that the podcast now has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware. And please take care of yourself and those around you.